Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by TBA member Bob Braun. Yeah, first, let me say how overwhelmed I am to give a Devar Torah, not only to the combined Kahal today, all the services, uh, which I had not expected, but when I was asked if I would be willing to do it today, because in the Minyan there are a number of us, well, not me apparently, who have a problem uh, being uh, live stream or on Zoom, I said, fabulous. I mean, what an opportunity to embarrass myself in front of a crowd. <laughs> so, uh, great opportunity. And I am a product of the library minion, and uh, during the last 50 years or so, a number of guidelines about Drashot have developed. One of them is that it seems like the idea is to make some preliminary remarks, which I will forego, except actually I've already done so, so it's one band. Um, but uh, one of the traditions, um, aside from keeping it relatively short, no one ever complained about a Drashot that was too short, uh, but one of the traditions is it's a good idea to connect the drasha with the parsha of the week. As uh, we used to say, that we look through the week through parsha hashua eyes, or perhaps vice versa. Anyway, beyond that, the more machmer of us uh, believe that a drasha should be about that portion of the parsha that we read in the triennial cycle. So I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> But I'm going to go back to last year's triennial cycle, the, what, we, the last, uh, what we read last year at this time. And it arises because of uh, my ambivalent view of Joseph. Now, Joseph is certainly a key figure. Joseph, I, in my studies, realized that um, Joseph has more play in Breshit than any other person. This book is, in many ways, Joseph's book. And, uh, you know, he has a novella written about him. And as Sandra mentioned to me the other day, he is the only one who gets an award-winning Broadway musical. <laughs> but beyond that, I have found Joseph to be a very difficult character. I found him to be somewhat two-dimensional. I found him to be lacking in emotion. Not this week. This week, he got plenty of emotion. But generally, he seems to be... A, you know, this odd character. He doesn't pick up on social cues. Otherwise, he might not have gotten thrown into the pit by his brothers. Otherwise, he might, you know, otherwise he might not have been thrown into jail. And think of it, when he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, he, he, when he, the cupbearer and the, uh, the cupbearer and the baker in prison, the way that he describes those dreams, there's no differentiation between someone who is forgiven and lives and someone who dies, someone who is executed. And there was a recent book written that made me think maybe the issue, well, I, I thought for a while that maybe the issue is that, well, Joseph is on the spectrum. And uh, that was partially validated when a book came out about a month ago called Was Joseph on the Spectrum? Um, and it's written by, and I've, unfortunately I forgot to write down his name, but it's a law professor at Turo University. And uh, he takes it a little bit long, but it's an interesting thought. But as I said, Joseph so often seems devoid of emotion. There's no record of him crying out to Hashem when he's thrown into the pit. 
he doesn't cry when he's imprisoned by Potiphar. And his assurance is both astounding and unfounding. unfounded. Ultimately, everything that he talks about is that, he, is that his response to all these situations is that it was ordained by God. And there's no, it was ordained by God, and there's no real human answer to it, no emotion. And unlike his father, his grandfather and his great-grandfather, he actually doesn't have a personal relationship with Hashem. God does not speak to Joseph, does not speak to him in dreams. God speaks to Joseph in other people's dreams. Now, it is tr- but what has troubled me most about Joseph for many years is the story of Joseph's reinvention of the Egyptian economy and political structure, which occurs in chapter 47, verse 13 through 27. And no, you don't have to pick up your chumashim, even though they're there, because I'll tell you about it. So what happens in those, that brief passage? First, Joseph, the people were starving. They had no food. So Joseph gathered all the money that was to be found in Egypt as, and Canaan as payment for food, and he gave them food and he gave the money to Pharaoh. And then the money ran out. And the Egyptians and Canaanites again begged for bread, but they had no money. So he told them, well, give me all of your livestock. Essentially, give me all of your possessions. And they did. And he took it and he gave it all to Pharaoh. And then the following year, the Egyptians and the Canaanites then said, again, begged for food. And they said, you know, we don't have any money and we don't have any possessions. So we'll offer up our land and we will become serfs to Pharaoh. And Joseph took that offer and acquired all of Egypt for Pharaoh, except for the priests. And I would note that according to some of the commentary, this section was written is is part of P. So it's part of the priestly section. So who knows? But anyway, Joseph then, so Joseph concentrated almost the entire wealth of Egypt into Pharaoh. And that was Pharaoh, that was Joseph's job. But he does something more. He removed the population of Egypt, town by town, from one end of Egypt's border to the other. This is radical. And the rabbi's reaction to this in particular is mixed. Now, there's some rabbis who praise Joseph. Nachmanides says that Joseph had great wisdom and understanding and knowledge, and he was completely reliable to Pharaoh. Not only he only worked only for Pharaoh, There's no indication that he diverted money to himself. And in our society, when we suspect, and we're often too right, that corruption and power go together, this is admirable. Other commentators emphasize that Joseph gave Egyptians a fair bargain. I mean, after all, they're alive. They didn't die. And Chazal emphasizes that, emphasized that the Egyptians asked Joseph to take them and their land in exchange for bread. They were asking Joseph to take them as slaves. Joseph, and the commentary said Joseph only wanted to buy the land, but since they offered to become serfs, he took their offer. However, there are other rabbis who have a different view. Rashbam compares Joseph's actions to Sennacherib, the Assyrian king who is in many ways the personification of evil in the Tanakh. Radak says, that Joseph dislocated the Egyptians because he wanted them to know that they were indebted to Pharaoh, that they were alive only by Pharaoh's grace. And in doing so, 
Joseph deprived them of their dignity and of their identity. However we look at it, the dislocation of entire populations is associated with evil. Stalin removed or killed much of the population of Ukraine and resettled it in order to gain power over it. Mao Zedong removed the city dwellers and intellectuals of China from the city to the country, resulting in massive famine and suffering. In this country, we have removed and dislocated entire nations, the First Nations, and we continue to do that. And let's not forget that that is something that has happened in Israel. These are not things to be proud of. And it is inconsistent with Joseph's actions and our actions are inconsistent with Jewish values. How does this fit in with the sabbatical year, with the Jubilee year, with the return of the land to the original owners and the forgiveness of debts? So as so many times in the Tanakh, we have to ask ourselves, why is this story here at all? How does this improve the narrative? Why do we need to know how Joseph reconstructed and empowered Pharaoh? Well, Joseph did do well by Pharaoh, but he also created a large landless society at the mercy of Pharaoh, and he didn't have to. He could have taken their land, not by owning the land, but as security for repayment. He could have chosen not to make them serfs, but he chose, he could have chosen not to remove them from their land, but he chose to enrich Pharaoh over all else. As we say in my business, he was a vigorous advocate for his client. Well, probably more than vigorous. And years later, we probably suffered from that because years later, when a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, do we think that the ordinary Egyptians, serfs at the hands of the Yivrim, felt compassion for the Yivrim? Did they feel compassion for the Jews who, as we know, from the final sentence in this segment of the story, acquired possessions and multiplied in Goshen? Perhaps it's true that this is just the way the script was written. Perhaps it's true that everything he did was preordained by God. But today, we should remember that we are empowered to make choices and that our choices have consequences. As Michael Berenbaum said last week, in so many ways, the world is at a precipice. The decisions we make and the decisions in which we are complicit have meaning and have import. The coming years will see us tested. Let's consider not just what is expedient at the time, not just what serves our current goals, and the goals of those for whom we work, but let us extend our vision further and examine how our choices reflect our values and our hopes for the future. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.